Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Tuesday the 14th of November and coming up, managing business risk after last night's massive Gauteng hailstorm. South Africa's staggering multi-million rand illicit trade problem and it's not just alcohol and cigarettes. The case of the massive road upgrade tender and why the weeds are growing where the car should be. South Africa's new immigration white paper is critiqued and the brutal tragedy of animals snaring at sand parks reserves. Several homes, a hotel here in Johannesburg and vehicles were damaged following a freak hailstorm in Gauteng Monday night. Many motorists were stranded on the N1 highway following heavy downpours. So how does all of this play from an insurance and a risk perspective? Let's start the show with Volker van Verden, who is Strategic Risk Principal at RiscoNet Africa. And Volker, inevitably we need to be better prepared, I guess, for more extreme weather events. Well, I think one of the key factors is that Many of our um, industrial and commercial sites were built perhaps decades ago, and they weren't built on specifications that could carry tons of hail, for instance, on the roofs, or uh, would stand various forms of damage. And when you have hailstones that are larger than cricket balls landing on your roof and accumulating, firstly, they don't go down the sides, and you then have tons of damage coming through the roof. The buildings weren't designed like that, and I think a review of that is needed. The same happens to uh, traffic patterns and the like. So I think the accumulation of hail and severe and sudden hail of the nature that we've just seen is going to have implications on testing the structural integrity of buildings, glass, uh, waterways, drains and the like. So let me ask you about that review process then. How can infrastructure be designed or modified to withstand the impact of the extreme weather conditions that you've just outlined, including um, hail experiences such as we had last night? Yeah, I think we were to start with, you know, hold of the buildings. Uh, what is the incline of the roofs? So obviously, I'm not an architect, but the basics would be that roofs are designed to carry a certain load and uh, stress and, and, and engineering factor. Uh, like we have in the 100-year floodlines, those things are just irrelevant now. So uh, the larger the roof, the flatter the roof, the older it is, those are the kind of obvious areas where the urgency of the reviews are needed. And then the same happens in low-lying areas. I think we're going to have very much faster accumulation of water and flash flood, not in like running floods, but if hail dams up all the flood drainage areas, the water can't disappear, so the water will rise very quickly. So I think we're going to find rising flood waters to an unplanned and new way because we always people thought that the water would go down a drain. It's no longer going mm-hmm. to go down those. So those reviews in the, in the context of low-lying and accumulated water areas is good. The other issue is that many industrial parks and warehousing areas are built in similar places. So areas are graded and they um, have concentrated facilities. So there's hardly any space for the water to actually run off. So the accumulation of water and that kind of flash flood 
from neighbors and in uh, industrial parks, I think, needs reassessment. So how should consumers and particularly businesses be reassessing their approach to insurance? Make sure that your flood risk and your, your wordings and any kind of um, you know, protections that are may be implied or those are actually addressed. You may find that you're in an area where your neighbor two or three blocks up the road or in an area that's around you dams up water and then you get a, a wash away. And the actual direct damage is not on your flight, but you're actually accumulating water from somewhere else. It may all still be covered in the context of a policy or coverage, but it isn't as direct in every case. For example, in Brisbane, you had um, the river flooding and the rain actually happened, say, 50 miles upstream. But then the water deluge came downstream. And in the Australian courts, rising water was not given the same definition as flood. In other words, the direct impact. So I think those are the kind of exposures we're now going to have in the context of accumulated and sudden accumulations of water. And I imagine that insurance companies themselves are rethinking the way in which they insure. Yes, because insurance is usually defined as a localized and sudden unpredictable event, as a single event. Now you have this mass amount of water that sort of swarms down an area and overcomes you know, an entire industrial park or a load or a kilometer or five kilometers roadway. And those sort of systemic or contagion type effects are going to start uh, affecting one, you know, areas. So in that context, we already hear and see that the definition of a risk to a, a single site might be sublimited to five or 10 or 20 percent of the value. And that if you want systemic risk cover, in other words, you know, there's a broad flood and you just wiped out with, with 100 others, you may have to buy an overriding cover of, of a systemic nature. And I think insurance will change in that direction. It's also incumbent upon us, surely, to better utilize technology in predicting and responding to extreme weather events. Absolutely. 10, 20 years ago, we started getting SMSs from insurers saying, wow, there's a possible storm, please park your car away. Now we need to be much more accurate about it, and we can be. So if we can measure the height of storm clouds and the energy in the clouds, we know the temperature differentials between the ground and the top, and we know the amount of energy that's in a particular cloud cell, we should be tracking that, that kind of activity a lot more. And we could or should be able to predict that lo- localized storm in, in the northern Joburg, Kailami, Woodmead area with much more accuracy. So you wouldn't say the whole of Gauteng is at risk. But these cells and, and the energy in those cells and what will come more and more with global warming is that sort of localized and absolutely severe storm. But with that also goes the ability to recognize uh, what it can do and its possible impact because you can measure these things. I'm going to leave it there and thank you. Volker van Verden, Strategic Risk Principal at Risconet Africa. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Is Sandparks failing to address an issue in snaring? Over 100 buffaloes have been lost due to the practice this year, making up nearly 35% of around 400 cases for all reported species. More details now from the Sandparks Chief Executive Officer, Hapilwe Selo. And first of all, why is there an increase in this brutal practice? Good afternoon, Jeremy, um, and to your listeners as well. This... This is a a concern, a major concern for us. We are speculating in the main the true reasons for the spike. But I'll start with scenario and option number one as as a a reason perhaps for the spike. It's to do with perhaps an increase in poverty in our communities. The Kruger National Park has abutting to it approximately 3 million people. 
uh, who live in a very densely populated area. As with the rest of South Africa, unemployment is very high. So perhaps we have an instance where we say people are poaching for the port, which literally is about putting up snares so that they can catch whatever uh, game that they can catch. There's no intention to catch buffaloes per se. Um, it's a, a snare is put there. Mm. Some of these snares catch uh, carnivores that people don't necessarily eat, uh, hyenas and lions. Uh, but in the main, we believe it's driven by by um, hunger, people wanting food. Um, then there is another troubling um, development that we are still monitoring and trying to get to understand, which is that there is a market, a growth in the market for bushmeat. So perhaps there is literally people who are snaring um, to to sell, to sell bushmeat. And of course, we can't just let it go like that. What we need to do, and we are going to be doing, is engaging with community leaders at length to try and understand the, the true root causes. However, I must just indicate that if the bushmeat theory is strong and is a fact, and we find that it's related to, in some form or fashion, organized crime, it becomes harder for us to to control. But then we have collaborations, uh, as you all know, with the security cluster. And it would then be about ensuring that we we work very closely with the security cluster. But where we sit, it's, it's, it is difficult mm. to determine exactly what it is. Yeah. So these are all ideas that you've got engagement with the community, better security cooperation. But are mm. you actually doing this or is this still in the planning phase? Because it seems to me that the problem is getting worse. You know, we are doing it. We are doing it, definitely. We have several partners that we're working with, uh, including NGOs. So we do have community liaison personnel on the go. And when you deal with this type of thing, you literally you need to enhance your environmental education because, and, and I'm talking about poaching for the port as opposed to organized crime, because people need to understand why there is a need to preserve, why there is a need to conserve wildlife, and what is also critical, if we're talking about issues to do with poverty, is, is to ensure that we have benefit sharing in some form or other. Mm. And I can assure you, Jeremy, that in, in a few months, we should be able to unveil a few projects that we believe are going to at least ensure that there's benefit sharing with communities. We already have some benefit sharing. Enhance, what we need to do is to enhance benefit sharing. But it will take a while perhaps, to get through to people. Uh, are all these interventions going to overnight mitigate the risk of, of snaring? It is unclear for now. But I think that by by the half of, the latter half of um, next year, we should be able to, to see some inroads being made. Do you have, a, do you have enough time at, at hand, given how bad the problem is right now? I mean, the clock is really ticking, isn't it? Do we have enough time? Very difficult to say. Very difficult to say. It's very difficult to say. All we can do is to run interventions, as I said, to mitigate the risk that we see. But really, it's about getting to the root cause. What is the root cause for this? What is driving the spike? There is something that's driving the spike. And it's quite likely that a lot of what lies at the root cause is not within our power as, as South African national parks on our own to deal with. Um, I'm, al I'm also assuming that the problem is exacerbated, particularly when it comes to the Kruger National Park, by the scale and size of the property and limited security personnel that you have at hand. Yeah, um, 
Kruger National Park is 2 million hectares. Um, I'm not sure how you conclude that we have limited security personnel. Um, we have as many boots on the ground as possible, but we live in a dynamic society. Well, let me rephrase the question. Uh, do, do you have enough boots yeah. on the ground? We believe we have. We had a few vacancies that we have been filling over time. Um, and by the end of this financial year, which ends in March, we'll have filled all of the ranger positions. But what you need to understand is that when you ma- manage a protected area, uh, you're always operating within a constant um, dynamism, a change in society. On the one hand, you deal with, so there was a time where rhino poaching was the biggest threat that was facing Kruger National Park. We have managed to arrest that. The rhino poaching wave has moved down to, to to the KZN area. Then as you're dealing with this situation, which is also a socioeconomic situation, by the way, plus organized crime, then another phenomenon arises, which is that of snaring. All I'm saying is it is a complex situation to manage because you live within a society. We are not as isolated as we'd like to believe. Protected areas are surrounded by communities. And whatever happens in those communities does spill over into into the southern, into the national parks. So even if you have 800 rangers covering, you know, um, Two million hectares. You are simply never going to to anticipate what's coming next. Uh, we are. We end up being a victim of macroeconomic uh, situations, if I may put it that way. I'm going to leave it there. The chief executive officer of Sandparks, Hapilwe Sello. Thank you very much for joining me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at midday. Well, let's look now at another enforcement issue and illicit trade on the black market in South Africa is seemingly out of control, facing on uh, multiple fronts, including alcohol, cigarettes, fishing, mining, counterfeit electronics, pharmaceuticals, food and apparel. I want to give you an expert view on the situation now as we're joined by Stefano Betti who is Vice President of the organization Transnational Alliance to Combat Illicit Trade. And uh, the question then is, is it getting worse? We don't know if the situation is getting worse. We can see that it's pretty serious, as you mentioned before. And this is affecting a number of business areas. Just think about uh, the tobacco sector, for example. We have estimates, for example, that 58% of cigarettes sold in South Africa are illegal due to under declaration of locally produced cigarettes. There are some business associations that estimate the counterfeiting phenomenon as accounting for 10% of the national economy. Illicit sale of alcohol products have reached a staggering 22% of the market and, and so on and so forth. And this is certainly aggravated by a number of macroeconomic figures that are worrying such as a very high unemployment rate, which is stably around 30%. And uh, for young people aged between 15 to 25 years old, even 60%. And the main effect of this is that people cannot afford to buy legal stuff and are inevitably turning to the black market to find cheaper alternatives. The problem is they may find cheaper alternatives, but they may also get dangerous products for their own um, health. 
think about adulterated substandard alcohol or or even medicines. So there is also a health issue here. Stefano, you mentioned tobacco and and alcohol. Are those the two principal areas of concern or are there others that are also uh, becoming increasingly worrying? I need to say that tobacco and alcohol are two very concerning sectors, also because these are the two sectors on which excise taxes are applied. So the more you have illicit trade of these products, the less governmental revenues are lost. And with few governmental revenues, of course, the government cannot do too much in terms of development programs, in terms of upholding the welfare state, etc. But certainly you have also other areas that are affected. Um, we have produced a report on, on a country report on South Africa a couple of months ago. And for example, we have seen an increase in the theft of copper from state-run industries. And we know, and this is worrying because copper is an increasingly important material, mineral, for the energy transition. And this is worrying because we certainly don't want the criminal groups become involved in the supply chains for these critical minerals that will be needed to implement the energy transition. We also have high amounts of wildlife trafficking from national parks. Rhino horns is is the most classical examples. All these things that get smuggled, especially towards Asia markets. And this is also due in part to um, a reduction in resources available for national parks authorities. Mm that as we know during covid where um, there were very uh, very low levels of tourism and and these authorities get money through tourism and so uh, with less money available it was more difficult to patrol um, these national parks and therefore poaching increased substantively right so as you say it is a multifaceted problem is it simply uh, an issue of poor law enforcement or is that oversimplifying it it is an issue of poor law enforcement. It's also an issue of lack of expertise and um, understaffing also in the law enforcement agencies. It's about uh, corruption in law enforcement agencies. It's not so much a problem of lack of legal frameworks available. So South Africa has very nice legal frameworks in many respects. For example, when it comes to confiscating criminal assets, there is good legislation in place. The problem in, in many cases is the way this law is implemented, which is lacking in many respects. So it's an issue of enforcement, of implementation, and also, I would say, lack of interagency coordination. Well, so let, let's, let's, let's talk about that interagency cooperation, if we can. You make the point that if a link is made between the illicit trade that you've just outlined to us and organized crime, law enforcement agencies will become more involved. Explain that to me. Yeah, there is a problem, certainly not only in South Africa, of collusion between law enforcement and governmental authorities and, and, and criminal organizations in many respects. This is fed by high levels of corruption. We see corruption in illicit trade schemes and at various junctures of the supply chain, not only to ensure, for example, that illegal goods cross borders illegally, but also to ensure that, I don't know, police raids are not conducted so that counterfeiting manufacturing 
factories keep producing and bribing officials so that they can turn a blind eye on this illegal manufacturing taking place, and so on and so forth. So yes, there is an issue of collusion here. And there is a connection and a close link between organized criminal groups, illicit trade, and illicit financial flows that need to be laundered. Let me ask you this question then. If the current trajectory continues, uh, what is the impact going to be on the South African economy? Well, if this continues, there will be a further reduction in governmental revenues, which will mean that the government will have um, less of an ability to support, you know, in the communities it's supposed to support and to, to provide public goods for communities. It will mean an increase in uh, organized criminality, which will have uh, various um, impacts in terms of security, increase in violence, in the circulation of weapons. I would say also very clear economic and financial implications, because then you you may have a situation where international credit rating agencies may downgrade South Africa, which will make it more difficult than for South Africa to attract foreign investment, which will make cross-border transactions involving South Africa more expensive. And so it would be a sort of a vicious circle that um, that sets in. But hopefully this will not be the case and uh, South Africa still have time to react and to improve the situation. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Stefano Betti, Vice President of the Transnational Alliance to Combat Illicit Trade. I appreciate it. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, if you remember, we spoke in some detail on the program yesterday to the Minister of Home Affairs, Aaron Motswaledi, who told us that his white paper on citizenship, immigration and refugee protection for public comment is a call for a complete overall of the migration system. He further advocated for the country's temporary withdrawal from international agreements on refugee protection. More broadly now, I want to ask this question. Is this a step in the right direction? And I'm in conversation with Moketsi Siboko, who is founder and director of MSM. Immigration Advisory. Moketsi, thank you very much indeed. What's your initial assessment then? Is government on the right track? Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I, will not, I will not answer that question with confidence, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's the right step nonetheless. The implementation thereof will determine if then this was a good move or not. What concerns you then about implementation? The, what, what, what I will find challenging is um, how are they going to deal with the current uh, foreign nationals who are already on the system? Will the new legislation exclude them from, qualifi- from qualifying for permits or visas going forward? Or will they be somehow automatically be included in, um, in, in the new regime that is proposed? So in other words, this is a cohort of people that could simply slip through the net? Correct. So is there a better way of handling it, do you think? Well, there isn't. Unfortunately, there, um, uh, there isn't, Jeremy. Um, there will be casualties. Um, it's the extent uh, that, that will determine whether, whether this will be um, um, accepted with, with, with the right uh, harmony that, that it was um, you know, proposed with. But uh, there will be casualties, I, 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 I assume. 
Um, we just need, we just have to to wait until next year when this is adopted by Parliament, and Home Affairs start implementing it. The the minister telling me yesterday that uh, this is a complete reset as far as immigration is concerned. What do you think is the broad thinking behind it? Has government simply got this wrong? Is it not keeping pace with uh, with international norms and standards? Correct. We 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 have we have been, I think I think. Um, Years behind um, international standard, uh, Jeremy, we, we we are still um, caught in you know um, old legislations that are not keeping in 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 check with what the international uh, standard is dictating. Um, our Refugee Act has has lots of loopholes. Our Immigration Act is not aligned to the Citizenship Act to what the economy wants. So um, uh, we are we we are found. In, in between and there are a lot of cracks that um you know foreign nationals who are clever they take advantage of and and they find themselves in the system um illegally so but then somehow enjoying the privileges and the benefits that ordinary south africans should be enjoying beyond asylum seekers um is this or, or the or are these changes going to have any impact on uh, so-called legal migration are is the system attuned uh, to making or facilitating a smoother process for people wanting to settle in South Africa that in itself and this is your area of expertise we know has uh, its own set of problems my my um assumption is that the intention is not to exclude the the foreign nationals with the correct skills, foreign nationals with investment, foreign nationals who will develop um, uh, the economy of the country. What what I I think the Department of Home Affairs is trying to do here is to close the loopholes in the Refugee Act by then bringing everything into a one into one legal prescript um, in order to ensure that those who come into the country uh, under the, the disguise of refugees and only to find that they are here for economic benefits those do not qualify but i would not want i would not want to think that um the department of home affairs will, will is or intention is to exclude those that we um uh, desperately need to develop the mm. country Moketi Siboko, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. I want to finish with a high-profile alleged tender scandal. In April 2019, there or thereabouts, Gauteng's Roads and Transportation Department published a tender to upgrade the busy Bayers-Nordia Drive in Randburg here in Johannesburg. But since then, nothing has happened, and the amount of money involved is nothing short of staggering. Uh, Funzin Gobeni is Action SA Gauteng leader. He's watching developments closely and has written letters to the Premier in this respect. What do you suspect has happened. My suspicion, uh, Jeremy, is that there is corruption happening in this particular project. If it's not, then it might be delays in payment from the province itself, but that it's not being confirmed. We send a letter to the Premier asking for clarity what is the problem and uh, when are they expecting this project to resume again. He didn't respond to us, he didn't even acknowledge our letter. But instead, we received a letter from the lawyers of the contractor, which makes us suspicious to say if the premier is unable to respond to us and then we get letters from the contractor, a service provider, 
uh, threatening that um, they're going to sue us if we don't uh, retract what we have said, then um, we're starting to be suspicious that there, there's something amiss here. And most of our projects um, in here in Gauteng and across the country have been really delayed by, by corruption. And we think that this is what is happening here in Bersnodia as well, Jeremy. Why do you think that the contractor is threatening to sue you? It's uh, basically saying to us that whatever we said in our statement is uh, it's wrong and, and that uh, there's nothing like that. Is a good standing contractor with the, with the province. But we responded to him to say, but you are not on site and you have not been on site since July this year. And if you really think that uh, we have really um, damaged your reputation, um, mm-hmm. let's meet in court and... Uh, and we'll be able to get the answers that we are requiring from the province and from yourself as a contractor as well. So, um, so, so you, we, you're, you're happy for this to are, go to court then? We are happy for this to go to court. Businesses in that area are suffering. The residents who are using that road to go to work are delayed every day. So if it takes us to go to court, um, we'll definitely do so. Are you able to describe the scene for us? What, what does it look like given that no work has been done for a number of months? So it's a section of the road between Peter Road on Bears Nodia, Peter Road and the R114. R114 is just a, a road that's, that's next to the N14. That section of the road was excavated and um, there are, you know, uh, road signage and, and all those things that uh, are demonstrating that there should be a construction happening. There is a um, little bit of, of material that was delivered uh, way before July, that is still there. And um, but besides that, nothing is happening. And um, as it's raining, like it was raining yesterday, it becomes a nightmare to drive on that road. How long should this project have taken? Look, in our view, uh, Jeremy, project of this nature is just about 4.8 kilometers. It shouldn't take more than a year to uh, to complete this project. As we're talking today, it's five years that this project was proclaimed, that it was budgeted for. And nothing has happened. So we, we, are, we are quite concerned. The corruption, payment delays might be issues that are, that are at play here. But we, we might also have uh, an issue of poor planning. Because um, um, this is not the only road. Uh, K46, which is uh, William Nicole, as you pass by Deep Slot, it's been under construction since 2015. A contractor after contractor comes in. They get terminated. A new contractor comes in. So this is the problem that we have. If you look at the at the road um, Walkerville, um, you know, in Midvale, as you go towards Didier, as you drive towards Fernaching, that construction. I was told over the weekend that it has also stopped. I'm going to go there, you know, this week to go and investigate what is happening, because it could be similar issues that we are having with with Houghton province. Are you sensing a pattern here? I'm sensing a pattern, uh, Jeremy, and uh, and, and I'm worried because um, these are economic infrastructure. This is an infrastructure that should help the economy of of this province to grow. People ask themselves why uh, such a high unemployment in in Houghton and in South Africa. One of the reasons is because our infrastructure, it's either being dilapidated, it's either being vandalized by criminals, or when they try to actually upgrade it, it's corruption that gets involved. So all these things, they, they really hinder economic prosperity in, in, in Houghton, and we need to be very serious about them in tackling them and, uh, and ensuring that those that are responsible are held accountable. As far as this Bayes-Nordia issue is concerned, how much money are we talking about? 
Yeah, we're talking about a tender that was initially offered for 168 million, but when it was issued, interestingly, it ballooned to 198 million, or close to about 30 million extra. And we we also asked questions: What happened? Uh, how did uh, this uh, initial 168 million went to about 198 million? We're talking about close to 200 million, uh, Jeremy. We are going to leave it there. Funzi Ngobeni, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Action SA Gauteng leader and MoneyWeb at midday will reach out to the Premier's office for a right of reply on this particular issue. Thank you very much. Other stories on our radar as we conclude the program today. Moody's has placed Transnet on review for a ratings downgrade and patients and medics remain trapped in Gaza's main hospital after days of fighting between Israeli troops and Hamas. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.